What's the first thing you do when you hear someone is sick, really sick? Yeah, we go into that mode of what can we do to help? Suddenly we've got a roster of cooking to keep them in food. We offer to look after the kids. We want to drop them off at their health appointments or we want to visit them in hospital. Hello, this is Penny Terry. And all that stuff is a bit bloody tricky right now, isn't it? So how do we help people who are sick or supporting or caring for people who are sick? From our home. Meg is someone who's experienced the awesomeness of having a community rally round and help. And she also knows how now this virus makes her vulnerable. 15 months ago, I had to do the math today, um, I had a bone marrow transplant for Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. So what that effectively means is I had a disease that wasn't responding to standard treatment. So that gave me a new blood production and immune system. So I'm 15 months on, um, I'm traveling well, and I've come off some of the nastier immunosuppression drugs. But I'm still very much, I suppose, in my infancy of my new body in a lot of ways. So it's, it's pretty vulnerable. I'm partially immunized. So I have to be incredibly careful about random or obscure um, infections, which sort of lands us firmly in that COVID-19 world. Um, so while my body might respond well to sort of more standard infections that are out there, like the cold, I survived influenza A last year. That was pretty nasty. But COVID-19 is a, a pretty real and genuine threat, I suppose, that I would face. When you say you need to be careful, uh, I remember when, you know, people really started talking about it and there was this thing going around that it's only 4% of people that will kill or whatever the percentage was. And, of course, that's you in that 4%. Um, how, did you, how did you feel at that time? Oh, look, I felt I don't often post stuff on Facebook, but I did share an ABC article about it because it's really hard when you're in that 4%. I've experienced it with my disease. My cancer was one of the most curable, like 98% are curable. I fell in the bloody 2%, excuse the language, that wasn't. So those stats, and I think it's been in, written in Lee Sales' wonderful book, is that you know, stats are fantastic if you're on the right side of them. So that's very reassuring when you're not in those categories. It's really terrifying when you are part of that cohort of people. And, and you know, that's something I've been able to talk to my parents about and that sort of thing because they feel exactly the same way. They are in that vulnerable cohort. And when I think about what frightens me the most, I, I actually, you know, I've done as much as I can to reduce my risk of catching the disease itself. Um, but what worries me is if I get unwell in another way, like, you, you know, my cancer recurs or something happens, you know, well, then how quick will the hospital be to deal with that? So there's the fear of the COVID-19 itself and catching it. There's also the fear of how much more vulnerable it makes you in the event than anything else that happens to you. The hospital system may not be as well equipped to support you in that. You know, a lot of my treatment was out of Melbourne. You know, we've got reduced flights. We've got so much other things going on. How easy would it be to access that care? You know, it's having the fact that you do have comorbidities thrown in there. You know, you've got underlying issues. So I feel like it's it's more multifaceted. Yeah, and I get frustrated when people are like, oh, I'm just not going to get it. I feel like, like, oh, I didn't think I was going to get cancer. I didn't think a lot of things. And now I'm in that vulnerable cohort and you're still standing there going, oh, it's not a big deal to me. So, yeah, I think it, it is scary. It's it's a very real fear and I work very hard not to let that consume me um, in terms of managing my time online and a few other techniques as well. 
It almost sounds like, Meg, there's something else in there that we can do to help from our homes. And that's that idea of thinking beyond yourself. So even if it's not calling you or bringing you around a casserole, what can you do to make sure that that you're not in the hospital as well? Yeah, and I think that's something I think as a friendship group around me have learned a lot in the last three years and I've got some amazing people, but I'll never forget having a conversation last year with a very good friend about flu vax. And she was like, oh, I've just never had a flu shot. I don't need one of them. Like I don't get that sort of illness. And I was like, yeah, I know you don't, but if you got it and it got to me, it's about creating this buffer around me. Um, and I know that sounds very self-centered, but it is about all of us creating, you know, that buff, that community buffer around vulnerable people. And she was like, oh, my God, I just never thought about my own health impacting someone else. Like I'd never thought about the fact that my actions could bring someone else undone in that way. And she was like, okay, we'll all go and get the flu shot. And probably, you know, I think as younger people, you know, I'm 38, like as a general, you don't think you don't think about your health care in that collective way. And I think culturally that that is probably part of what is that big shift we've got to go through with this virus is it is about, yeah, doing your bit for the greater good. How's the shift in your health literacy going right now? I guess the understanding that the flu vac, for example, isn't about our own health necessarily. I think we knew that and I think many of us have been in similar conversations, but there's something about it being explained by Meg now during COVID-19 that makes it seem more simple and perhaps gives us ideas of how we can help from our homes. Speaking of home, let's see what else we can learn from Meg about how she's decided what changes to make in her home. I had a hookup with my haematologist a week and a half ago in Melbourne and we talked a lot about what you can control in these sorts of situations. So when you have a compromised immune system, in a more general sense, it's about controlling your exposure, whether that be exposure to what's out there generally in the community, what the kids might be bringing home. Um, but in this particular instance, it means being really careful with who I interact with, removing myself socially. So not sort of heading off to Friday night drinks and not um, having as many coffees, um, sending my husband to do the supermarket shop. Um, probably I, I think we're a little bit next level in terms of what comes into the house now in the sense that anything that comes from supermarkets and stuff is wiped down. We're probably not being as good with it, recycling our grocery bags and that sort of thing. So some things are going into the bin. Um, so we wash all our fruit and veg. We then wash all our tins and um, more substantial packaging with either a bit of soap and water or some disinfectant wipes. So we are like ultra careful with anything that comes into the house. I went and picked up some, I, was a, I kind of, I do like my online shopping. I've been a bit wondering what happens with that, like where it's come from, is it nationally or internationally? And so we certainly wipe down the box before we handle it. Then when the, whatever it comes out, but if it's clothing, it goes in the washing machine. But we're just being really careful with anything that comes in the door. Um, my husband is still working off farm. So if he's goes out or he goes to the supermarket or wherever he has to, do, to go to run an errand or if I had to go to the which I have had to go to the GP and doctor's appointments as soon as we come home we strip off our clothes put them in the wash have a shower just really trying to minimize anything that comes into the house it does feel paranoid even to me for me I feel like knowing the sorts of things that people like Meg are doing at home gives me a good way to weigh up what is an okay way to help and what's not. 
And for people who are using the health system right now, these types of safety measures also mean the way they get their care has changed. Robin McKinnon has a private practice as a mental health social worker and is a frontline health worker. She's learning about all the different impacts these changes have. I think one of the challenges that we've all been facing is we've been so used to seeing our patients and our clients face to face for pretty much our whole entire profession. Um, And now we're adjusting to moving to either telephone or um, video-based consultations or even adjusting to having to be more aware of our distance and how we actually interact. And so that's really um, changing how we interact to patients in lots of different ways. And that adds a a level of anxiety that we're maybe not been used to um, prior to now. What sort of impacts might there be on the relationship that health professionals are able to have with their patients? I think that's a a really great question. And I think most of us um, come into this job wanting to care for people um, and still very much so. We're we're very aware of wanting to care for people right now and um, we're feeling the anxiety and we're seeing the anxiety in our patients too and finding that a really stressful time to know how do we um, reach out to people knowing that we're less able to connect and so trying to engage with patients who are struggling to know how to access technology, um, even being able to come into appointments perhaps in a different way, when we're mindful of um, just the stresses that are going on is not quite the normal way we would normally do our practice. Um, and so as health professionals, we want to care for people as best as we possibly can. And so the best thing that the community can do, I think, for us is to work with us Um, And I think that's the message that probably everyone is hearing every time they turn on the news is stay home, save lives. And perhaps at some point people are going to get sick of that message, but that is probably the best that people can do is is work with us and we want to work with them. Um, And we need that kindness and we need that patience and we need people not to get angry and frustrated at the systems that are being put in place to protect them and to protect us because it's not that it's personal and it's not that when when questions are being asked or systems are being put in place that say, you know, only one visitor at a time or we're now moving to telehealth appointments. It's not that we want that to be our practice at this point in time. It's just that at the moment we're doing everything in our power to protect people and stop this virus from getting any further out of control than it is. I wonder what you picked up there. For some of this stuff, it it sounds so simple, but could be really tough logistically, like lots of things right now. One of the things that I've noticed is that for me, I've got small children. And so um, I've had to be more conscious that when I come home from work of an evening, um, I've had to put um, measures in place so that I need to come home and um, not hug my children of a night time before I um, shower and get changed and um, wash all my clothes and um, before I connect to my kids. And, and that adds another layer of anxiety and stress to my family just to make sure that we're making um, protecting them and ensuring that we don't bring home unnecessary risks to them. And, and that's different to normal. Normally when you come home from work, you give them a big hug and a kiss and say hello and um, grab dinner and all those kind of things. So I think that's something of a practice that many other people on the front line are having to experience too. 
So, you know, we're often working longer, working harder and having to change, you know, how we inter interrelate to people. The other thing that we're noticing is we're also maybe having to make decisions to who we connect to. So I know that not being able to go and visit or connect to my, my parent-in-laws who are more older people, for example, knowing that they're in a more higher risk category, that if they were to become unwell, this could be quite serious. So the connections or circles of influence that we might normally relate to or socially connect to as a way of self-caring or debriefing after work um, are no longer as accessible for us. And that makes it a bit of a challenge at this point of time. How useful is it for people who are working on the front line to have what they're going through recognised? by their friends and family? How important is it that they, they, they feel that other people get it? I think it's important that we recognise that we're all in this together at the moment. Um, and, it, and it is really hard for all of us who are working on the front line. Like when I come home at the end of the day, I don't know if I feel like the people in my family get it either. Um, and it's really hard to, to be able to share um, effectively, even in this conversation, I'm mindful that it's really hard to share in words just what it's really like at the moment to carry the stories and um, the anxiety of what it's like knowing what it might be um, and what COVID-19 might look like. And part of that is, one, we don't know what it looks like and we're seeing um, information coming out of other countries and even the mainland and so that anticipation of what it could be and that anxiety is really scary and so you're holding that in one hand but also trying to trust that we've done all this preparation um, and we've got all these resources and hoping that it's going to be okay and trying to manage and mitigate that anxiety um, but also knowing that it is it this the calm before the calm or the calm before the storm? And it's a really difficult place. And trying to share that with people outside of the system, it is really a really difficult place to be. And I think it's hard because you want understanding, but you also can't share that too widely because people are going to get more anxious and fearful. So I think part of it is we need kindness and patience from those around us who love us. Um, but also we need normalcy. We, we need to be able to somehow um, keep business as usual and, and to put, look at what we can control because we're getting so anxious and stressed and worked up that what we know is that the more anxious that we become, that is going to make us more immunocompromised as we um, go forth. Being stressed make, and that making us more immunocompromised, how does that work? Yeah. Um, I think what happens is when we become stressed, you know, our body starts to shut down. And so if we're not breathing as well, what we know what um, happens is that our um, ability to function and to think properly starts to get compromised. So um, our brain will not be able to sleep very well. We might overthink. We might become irrational. Um, our adrenaline will start to increase. And so what we, we know is that we need to be able to slow all that down. And so if we can sleep well, we can eat well, we can exercise well, you know, our body will actually be able to function in its best capacity to be able to, to fire off any kind of things that might start to attack ourselves. For the friends and family or people in the community who might want to support their friends to slow down, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we encourage someone 
to slow down when we know their mind and their head is not is not feeling slow? I think that's one of the hardest things is because right now we're racing um, and we feel like we're racing against the clock to try and fight um, this disease that we can't quite see at the moment. And so part of the things that we can do to slow down might be simply to connect with our bodies and to ground ourselves. And that could simply be to use some strategies like mindfulness But it could also be getting access to um, some apps or some other resources um, or even just talking to one another and um, finding ways that we can reach out to to talk to either health professionals or to um, a trusted friend about how we're feeling. How common is it or how common are you finding it that people are turning to apps or for the first time trying out mindfulness or taking some time out to do some breathing or all of this stuff that they may have felt very uncomfortable or thought was just sort of rubbish before, they're actually trying now? Um, I'm finding that a lot of people are trying that and I think it's because um, we're not able to see people face-to-face as much as um, normal. So I think we're, we're giving things a go that we might not have ever done before and um, people are finding that, hey, actually some of these things work. I think the other thing to remember is that some of these things are really um, basic and simple to do. You know, we're washing our hands more than we've ever done before. And so when we wash our hands, you know, that's a perfect time to practice mindfulness. So as we wash our hands, we can be mindfully noticing um, what it feels like as we we wash our hands, what it smells like, which um, obviously um, is often very strong in scent. (laughs) But, you know, noticing the five senses as we do those activities. Many of us, particularly in the frontline professions, are having more showers than ever before. So noticing the five senses as we have those showers. Um, So accessing mindfulness in the mundane so that it's not an add-on to something that we're doing, but something that we can integrate into our daily um, practices. Okay, so we're starting to get some ideas that we could pass on or use ourselves. But let's get back to the casserole thing. If part of your daily routine was to cook for someone who isn't well right now or stop in for a cup of tea, let's see what Meg's doing about that. I think the cooking one's a really interesting one and I reckon people would have different views on this. I mean, certainly we were sustained by people dropping off food when I was really unwell um, and we were incredibly grateful to that and our tight-knit community was amazing. You know, we had a bit of a roster that kept Tom and the kids fed in particular when I was in Melbourne. And we're sort of at the point now where I'm a bit like, well, unless it's cooked probably by my (laughs) mother-in-law, I'm a bit like, no, I I know where they've been and what they've been doing and I know where the food's been and what it's been doing. So we've certainly very much even stepped back from that. What has kept me sane is what can I control? And I can control my exposure. I can control what I eat. So I prefer it to be cooked in-house within that immediate family or... I was thinking instead of doing those traditional coffee, cup of tea, drop off a casserole, I I still recall the best story when I was stuck in Melbourne and I couldn't even have flowers. That's how, because they have spores and they they would not allow flowers into the building. And my book club, who are an amazing group of girls, um, sent over and they arrived like day by day for like a week, all the books that we were to read for book club for the year. So little things like that, I think, again, that, you know, People that are really worried about that risk of infection can give a quick wipe down and know they're sort of safe to go. Meg, if you could have no guilt 
about asking somebody to do something for you and it's something that they need to be able to do safely in the conditions, no guilt, that would help you, what would it be? Oh, God, that's a good question. I really think it's the checking in. I really genuinely think the the easiest and the best thing that has no risk is the picking up the phone and checking in on people. Like for me it's that thought that you are in someone's thoughts I think is is the most rewarding thing rather than someone saying I want to do this or I want to do that and asking the individual what can I do for you. So if someone said to me what can I do for, for me it might be oh, you know, I'd think about if I didn't have to make a trip to town. We live on a farm, so something where I I didn't have to make that trip. Or, you know, it might be picking up a couple of parcels from the post office or an essential task I then didn't have to do. The, The biggest thing for me is being asked rather than being told, this is what I should do for you because you're unwell. And, and you know, I've had those experiences where, like, you're unwell, so you will be fed this. I will bring this and you will eat it. And I'm like... Oh, I actually really don't like casseroles. Like, how do you have that conversation? <laughs> so, so I think it really is just that making that phone call, asking that individual, what is it that I can do for you? What are you comfortable for me to do for you? Because everyone is so individual about what sort of support it is that they want or need. And I think regardless of where someone's immune system is at, that, that would be the best bit of advice I could give anyone. Yeah, so obvious, isn't it? So can we make a difference from our homes now we know this stuff or have perhaps been reminded of it as we frantically try and help? We will have lots of people who will be looking after each other really well. It's probably those that don't have those close connections that I'm probably still most worried about. Um, But yeah, you're right. I think if we can be, um, you know, touching base and and doing those really good connections, it will help um, the healthcare professionals. It's just... How do we make sure that it's those quiet people in the community that that don't have a neighbour or don't have a family member, that how do we reach to those people? Lots of the partners that we work with are thinking this same thing. How do we help people who don't have people and don't have access to internet or technology? How do we reach them? If you're doing something that does work, share it with us. You can talk with us via Facebook or Instagram. Just search for HealthSpeak or you can get in touch via the Healthy Georgetown Project, which you'll find online too. One thing that might help is the info that's in this podcast. So send them a link or tell them how they can listen via the Healthy Georgetown website or perhaps let them know they might hear it on their community radio station. One of the things that I've learnt today is that it's okay to not know how to help and it's really good to ask. So I'm going to keep the asking going on our next episode of HealthSpeak as part of the Healthy Georgetown Project thanks to the Georgetown Council. 